Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yes, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week we meet for an hour to experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joy, our aha moments, and stories that have been left in our pockets for too long. Sometimes we share topics that tradition tells us there's some things you just don't talk about. But right here, we live beyond the wreckage, so each week we start right where we are. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet, www.radiofairfax.org, every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Yes, I know. That's that's not the best time. It's date night. That's okay. Should you miss us, check out our podcast on YouTube. Just key in, Frankly Speaking, with Tyra G. And for those of you who feel like connecting offline, I've enjoyed chatting with you. All you have to do is email me at tyra, tyragarlington.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. Our theme this month is thank you for your service, then and now. I am passionate about celebrating veterans and active duty military who continually help us sustain and maintain our quality of life, and often at the greatest of cost. This November and December, we're hearing stories through a diverse lens to include wars fought, age, gender, race, family impact, and especially resulting cultural and social legacies. Our stories have included Mary Jessie Herrera, a 100-pound, 20-year-old military policewoman who wore accessories as an M16 and an M 9mm sidearm in Iraq after being wounded in an ambush while taking prisoners to Fallujah and 20 operations of putting her arm back together. Mary is happily raising two daughters and has her master's degree. George Bodie, an African-American officer in the Vietnam War who at 22 had to manage the social and cultural implications resulting from this being the first United States fully integrated war, which saw the highest proportion of blacks ever to serve in an American war. We heard some heart-to-heart informative stories from women who decided to serve in the Vietnam War as nurses, librarians, and social support personnel as well. All of that had some unusual consequences. We cried with stories from wives of prisoners of war and military widows. And since this marks 100 years since World War I, I've included personal World War I veteran stories, which had to be told through the voices of surviving relatives and friends. Today, we continue time traveling, first backwards to World War II, to meet some special heroes with stories that have often been left untold. Then we'll fast forward into the 21st century to meet a pilot and commemorative Air Force Red Tail Squadron leader, Bill Shepard. The best part of today is discovering how these two stories are connected. 
And for many of you who are both intergenerational and international, you may find some things surprising. So to start our journey, I want to quote from an account published in the Franklin Roosevelt Library titled, Who Were the Tuskegee Airmen? In the 1940s, the United States military, like so much of the nation, was segregated. The so-called Jim Crow laws kept blacks from entering public places such as libraries, restaurants, and movie theaters. Although African Americans served in the armed forces, they were restricted in the types of jobs and positions they could hold. On April 3, 1939, President Roosevelt approved Public Law 18 that provided for an expansion of the Army Air Corps. One section of the law called for the creation of training programs to be located at black colleges, which would prepare blacks for service in a variety of areas in Air Corps support services. But on January 16, 1941, the War Department announced the creation of the 99th Pursuit Squadron. This was to be an all-black flying unit trained at Tuskegee Institute, founded in Tuskegee, Alabama by Booker T. Washington in 1881. Charles A. Anderson, a self-taught African-American pilot, had established a civilian pilot training program at the Institute in 1939. Well, since there were no black officers, 11 white officers were assigned to train and prepare a total of 429 enlisted men and 47 officers who would become the Tuskegee Airmen, the first black military personnel in the flying school. From 1941 to 1946, over 2,000 African Americans completed training at the Tuskegee Institute. Nearly three-quarters of them qualified as pilots. The rest went on to become navigators or support personnel. Together, again, they were known as the Tuskegee Airmen. During the war, the 99th Pursuit Squadron, which was later renamed the 99th Fighter Squadron, flew in the skies over the Mediterranean and Europe. The missions were primarily as bomber escorts. The 99th Fighter Squadron had to be distinguished, had the distinguished record of never, I say never, losing a bomber to enemy fighters. In addition to shooting down enemy attack aircraft, they also shot down the belief that African Americans were not suited to responsible military service. In 1948, President Truman ordered the desegregation of the United States military. Now the icing on the cake is in the following account. Just picture this. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt was very interested in the work at the Tuskegee Institute, particularly in the aeronautical school. During a highly publicized visit to Tuskegee, she asked to take a flight with one of the Tuskegee pilots. Now, you know how the Secret Service looked upon that. However, Chief Civilian Flight Instructor Charles Alfred Anderson, known today as the father of black aviation, piloted Mrs. Roosevelt over the skies of Alabama for over an hour. Flying with Anderson demonstrated the depth of Eleanor Roosevelt's support 
for black pilots and the Institute's training program. Press coverage of, the, of her adventure in flight helped advocate for the competency of these pilots and boasted the Institute's visibility. Roosevelt was so impressed with the program, she managed to stay in touch with some of the airmen. I'd like to do something now that I hope you will enjoy, and that's to play a segment of an interview with several of the airmen at their reunion, so you'll hear them in their own voices. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. I'm Melissa Block, and next we're going to spend some time with a special group of World War II veterans. Last month, members of the Tuskegee Airmen, the nation's first black fighter pilots, came together for what could very well be their last reunion. They met in Florida, and NPR's Karen Grigsby-Bates was there. They come in one by one or in small groups. Some have the brisk pace and erect posture that speaks of their military history. Others walk a little more slowly. Several have younger family members hovering protectively nearby, and a few roll by or are pushed in wheelchairs. Many haven't seen each other for seven decades. They're all former pilots of the 332nd Fighter Group, black men who fought to be allowed to fight in the air in World War II. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, trim and crisp, came from Michigan and says all these men made a special effort to get here. 355 pilots were sent overseas. Of that 355, only 46 are living today. The ages vary anywhere from 86 to 96. In other words, there's not a lot of time left, which is why they've come tonight. Leo Gray, one of our members, thought that it would be nice if we could go ahead and call upon those 46 that are living now to come down to Orlando, which we have done, and just join maybe one more time for our last hurrah. About a dozen of them were able to make it, and they came in good spirits with lots of stories. Alexander Jefferson, a small man with a precise silver mustache, told about being gunned out of the sky during a mission. I was shot down August the 12th, 1944, strafing radar stations, and I was knocked out. So I spent nine months in Germany as a prisoner of war. How did the Germans treat you? As an officer and a gentleman. No beatings, no torture because of the Geneva Convention. Nearby sits Hiram Mann, a chipper man who was nicknamed Gremlin by his colleagues. Mann remembers how he was saved by a twist of fate. He flew 48 missions during the war, but the base flight surgeon wouldn't clear him and some of his squadron mates to go back so soon. So someone else was tapped to fly Boss Lady, the plane he'd named after his wife. Mann saw the change on the duty roster. Well, they scratched out my name in pencil, his name above mine, to fly in my place. They said, they've got me scheduled to fly your plane again. Is that okay? Well, what are you supposed to say? No, you can't do it. You know, yeah, it's okay. Not so okay for the pilot. Boss lady never returned. I think about it. I say, yeah, but for the grace of God, go I. But then I may not have been in that exact spot in the air when he was shot down. During World War II, a number of black men volunteered to become pilots, but the segregated military refused their offer. A 1925 report by the Army War College claimed blacks weren't intelligent or coordinated enough to fly complicated machinery. It also questioned their courage. 
It took the outrage of the black press and a lawsuit that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court before an experimental program that would train black pilots was established. A vintage Air Force newsreel tells the story. In July of 1941, five young Negroes made aviation history at Tuskegee, Alabama. These five men were the first of their race to graduate under the Army Air Force's newly organized plan for training Negro pilots. Nearly 1,000 pilots were trained, and about a third of them were posted to Europe. The Germans called them Schwarze Vogelmenschen, or Black Birdmen, and they said that with great respect and considerable apprehension. The Allies called the pilots Red Tail Angels for their protection and for the signature color on their planes' tails. This meeting in Orlando was chosen to coincide with the 66th anniversary of the mission to Berlin, the longest round-trip mission undertaken by the 15th Air Force during World War II. The goal, take off from Ramatelli, Italy, escort bombers to Berlin, destroy the Daimler-Benz tank works there, and return. 1,600 miles nonstop. Mission accomplished. They'd served their country well, but when the Red Tails returned, Alex Jefferson says it was business as usual. Coming back on the boat, got to New York Harbor and the flags waving, Statue of Liberty, walked down the gangplank, a little white soldier at the bottom says, whites to the right and niggers to the left. Coming back home. You talk about startling. God. Colonel George Hardy says the Red Tails' performance made a lasting impression when the Air Force became a separate branch of the service after the war. Hardy says based on its experience with the Red Tail pilots, the Air Force commissioned a study on the feasibility of integration in November 1947. And then in uh, April of 48, the Air Force announced they were going to integrate. That was before President Truman signed that executive order. The order that eventually would integrate all branches of the service. Brigadier General Stacy Harris counts herself as a direct beneficiary of the Red Tail's efforts. Harris is the first African-American woman to command an Air Force flight unit. She's now Mobilization Reserve Assistant to the commander of AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command. What they did, how much it meant to not just blacks in the service, but to everyone in the military, as far as desegregation, as far as paving the way, as far as demonstrating that blacks could fly, as far as just being American heroes. To this day, it's still overwhelming to me. You look like it still gives you shivers. It does. <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Leo Gray, the event's organizer, says he and his fellow pilots didn't consider themselves heroes. We thought we were just doing what we had to do at the time, and uh, we had no idea we were going to have the impact that it did. Even if for years that impact was persistently ignored outside the black community. In 2007, President George W. Bush invited all surviving Tuskegee airmen pilots, ground crew, technicians, to Washington to receive the Congressional Gold Medal. I would like to offer a gesture to help atone for all the unreturned salutes and unforgivable indignities. And so on, by the half, on behalf of the office I hold and a country that honors you, I salute you for the service to the United States of America. They're getting used to the accolades. At the Red Tail Pilots' reunion in Orlando, Navy personnel at a conference in the same hotel stood in long lines to have their picture taken with this group of proud elderly men. Captain Art Pruitt explained why. These gentlemen literally changed the course of 
history and broke down one of the hugest barriers in the military, the race barrier, the color barrier. They are the heroes of our past generations and being able to honor them like this is truly a privilege for a guy in the uniform still. Then he turned back one last time to gaze at the men who flew into American history. Karen Grigsby-Bates, NPR News. That gives me shivers as well. I was blessed to be at that event in Orlando. History. Well, there are very few of them left. However, we have some current champions that are keepers, keepers of the flame, keepers of the history. And after a very short break, you will meet one of them. Stay close. Do you like to hear interesting, refreshing new music from up-and-coming singer-songwriters? Do you like to hear new and rarely heard hits from your favorite classic rock artists who have been making music for years? Are you fed up with commercial FM radio that just won't give you any of that? Then tune in Sundays at 10 a.m. to Eclectic Hours where you can hear all that and more. That's Eclectic Hours, Sundays, 10 to noon, here on Radio Fairfax. Don't be a fool on the hill sitting around looking through a glass onion and listening to the obla-de-obla-da of ordinary radio, just let it be and make Fridays a good day in the life. Take the long and winding road and come together to listen to the Magical History Tour. I'm Rusty Gibson and I promise to act naturally. Join me on the Magical History Tour. A splendid time is guaranteed for all. Rusty Gibson's Magical History Tour every Friday afternoon at 5. And we are back. Welcome to the conversation. I don't know if I'll do this in the right order. Pilot and commemorative Air Force Red Tail Squadron Leader, Bill Shepard. Good afternoon. How are you? I am feeling good because you're at the other end of this phone. I need for you to introduce yourself, as I ask all my guests to do, but do it in a way. We have a human library project going here Give us an introduction that would make us want to read your book, your full book. And while you're doing that, could you unpack your title and what that means? Well, I think a lot of people in today's world have uh, are multifaceted and wear many hats. But uh, most people know me as uh, one of the squadron leaders for the Red Tail Squadron, uh, Colonel for the Commemorative Air Force, Bill Shepard. Uh, being a squadron leader for the Commemorative Air Force, I also have blessed to be able to be the vice president of education for the Commemorative Air Force nationally as well. So it's pretty exciting times to to be honored to be able to be and blessed to be able to um, you know tell the stories of the Tuskegee Airmen and many of the veterans that are from the greatest generation from World War II. Absolutely. Um, how, how did you walk into that space? You know, I, I think it's like a lot of people grasping opportunity as it presents itself. Uh, I've been very lucky to to have opportunities to present uh, to me over my course of my career. And I think the differentiator is uh, I want to embrace those uh, opportunities for change and opportunities for greatness and be able to uh, bring them closer to me rather than uh, finding ways not to do something. I've, I've been finding ways to make things happen. You know, improvise, adapt, overcome, as my Marine Corps father would say, and uh, being able to then uh, you know enjoy the fruits of that uh, fruits of that exercise. Now, I was obviously researching you, and I saw Kansas, Canada, Texas. Geography seemed to play a, a large 
role in your life, and perhaps you can help us understand that journey. You know, it, it was an exciting time for me growing up because I was uh, able to uh, have the best of both worlds. Uh, my home state is Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, uh, I'm a true Jayhawker, and uh, my family's mm-hmm. still there in Lawrence, Kansas, and we've been there for a long period of time. And I was really blessed because uh, being an African-American family at my time, in my age, was in the 1960s, I was uh, the product of the two largest families in that community, uh, the Kimballs and the Shepherds, as far as my namesake is my father. And once I was uh, you know, the, the oldest grandson from that union, I was related to everyone in the area, so I have a very blessed and very rich uh, family tree and history in the Lawrence, Kansas area. But uh, but in those days, in the 1960s, uh, you know, when I came to fruition for my parents, uh, there wasn't much jobs for uh, for young African American males uh, uh, back in those days. And before I was born, obviously, uh, my dad got out of school and he joined the Marine Corps and uh, was shipped off to Vietnam. And and uh, fast forward the clock, uh, you know, he did uh, two and a half, three tours of Nam and spent a lot of time there. And and uh, I often uh, immortalized my father across between Lou Gossip Jr. and and uh, officer and gentleman, and uh, also uh, the great Santini as well, as far as a true, true Marine uh, through and through. But uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, my mother uh, uh, um, found her way uh, to Canada during that period of time because she was, uh, once again, a military wife and uh, and was alone at that time. So she decided to uh, go to Canada where she had met my stepfather, who was, in, in contrast to my father, the whole other different side of the spectrum. So I have two great fathers, uh, my, my birth father and my stepfather. And uh, uh, my father was service to his country in Marine Corps for 20 years as an officer and the Marine Corps Fighter Squadron, and then we retired. He came home to Lawrence, Kansas, and became uh, in the Sheriff's Department for 20 years in our hometown. So great uh, uh, role model for service to your community and your country. And my uh, stepfather was a business executive. And so great, uh, great, uh, once again, background for, uh, you know, corporate lifestyle and, and, and servicing the uh, the commercial side of the world. So I've had a great opportunity to live in both countries. I uh, went to school in both countries. I uh, have some great parents. And uh, so I, have, uh, I probably have a good leg up uh, compared to a lot of folks. And I'm I'm listening. I was listening to your your history, and I don't think many of our international uh, listeners may be in tune with what it was like in the '60s to gain employment that was not traditional for African Americans. And um, often we did have to leave places to go to other places to find a new place to achieve and grow. But um, I was interested. Um, your father. Vietnam, did you have an opportunity when he came home or while he was away to share what that was like? More people I'm talking about from Vietnam, and I actually had a beau who was shot down three times in Vietnam. And the stories, ah, the stories seem to be difficult to tell. So I guess what I'm asking, was your father able to share with you I've shared a great many stories with my father and his experience in Vietnam, and actually we were just home for the recent Thanksgiving break, and, and we were sitting uh, having a discussion about that once again, what it was like to be 18, 19 years old. Yeah, he yeah, actually, yeah. He actually joined the service when he was 17. He, he snuck oh. in the service at 17. He went as an enlisted person uh, overseas uh, in country at that point in time, but he progressed through the ranks and became a warrant officer and, and so forth, and eventually became an officer, a lieutenant, then a captain before he retired. 
Um, so he had an in- interesting journey, and uh, we were talking about pilots in particular because I'm, I'm being a pilot and mm-hmm. what the military was like. And he said, you know, back in those days, I, he said, I knew all the African-American pilots in the Marine Corps. Because you got to remember the Marine Corps had just recently desegregated. Right, right, right. It's, uh-huh. it's really only, uh, you know, a, a decade or so since the, uh, you know, the desegregation of the military. So the Marine Corps was really still, a, still uh, in practice, was uh, still separate as far as, uh, you know, people gathered in, in their own particular groups and what have you. So he came in in that genre um, and uh, and uh, was able to flourish in that respect. So it was interesting talking to him about his service, the Marine Corps, and his service uh, just after desegregation and what it was like to be a young person looking for a job from Midwestern Kansas, right. uh, Midwestern U.S. and things. And, uh, and he had a very, um, uh, very successful career. Um, I probably get most of my uh, tenacity from him and his mm-hmm. Marine Corps uh, mantra as far as improvise, adapt, and overcome. And it's uh, served me well in my life to be able to take advantage of situations that uh, may not be perfect. It may not be exactly the way I, I would want them to be or, or, or people looking for the, the best scenario. But take what you got to improvise, adapt, and overcome and be able to uh, you know, squeeze the, uh, the sweetness out of life. And uh, I've been able to do that based on, on uh, his guidance and his uh in his um, um, stewardship. Take what you got. Squeeze yeah, the con- sweetness out of life. What was the other yeah. thing? Yeah, just uh, just in, in contrast before I leave, other, you know, my, my parents had separated when I was a young lad uh, oh, as far okay. as the uh, 1970s, but my mother found her way to my stepfather, which is just an interesting little anecdote to the story that my stepfather is actually the reason we ended up in Canada mm-hmm. because he was a conscientious objector. Oh. Uh, so, and he's Caucasian as well. So, coming from an uh, uh, African American family in Kansas, 1960s, going off to overseas to war, uh, my mother uh, found her way with my stepfather. He was a, uh, it, it, it turned to be a mixed relationship. So, all the different uh, baggage that comes along with that. Uh, he was a conscientious objector, had to leave the country. So, my mother took my sister and I in tow, and, and, and we came to Canada as flower children. So I had an interesting <laughs> little about. There's a whole other story there, and expect, but <laughs> but uh, but uh, that both in re- fast for the clock. Both uh, my fathers have been excellent uh, uh, gentlemen and and excellent uh, uh, teachers and mentors for my life, and uh, and uh, they've uh, since become best friends. They're polarized in, in those days in the 60s and 70s, but now as they get older and wiser, they realize that uh, each other has a valid point of view, and it's very interesting to watch that dynamics uh, over the last 40 years uh, develop between my father, and my stepfather, and. Uh, my dad calls my stepfather's husband-in-law. Uh, that's <laughs> so, uh, so I've been very blessed in that regard. Yes, you have, because I, uh, I married into and therefore had a blended family. And it is not always that easy. But we, we have to remember that life is a process. It is not an event. And time has a way of molding us in different ways uh, based on the directions we choose. Uh, conscientious objector. I remember I was in California. Uh, yeah, and there was a lot of that uh, spirit. And, of course, the Vietnam War, there was a lot of things. There was a war. There was a war of attitudes and values on state side, just like there was a war in Vietnam. So uh, I remember the anger. I remember that a lot. I remember crowds. I remember demonstrations. I remember vets coming home to people spitting in their faces and I thought that was unconscionable. So, yeah, I hear you. And your dad, that's amazing, 17 years old, he stepped up. And how long was he, how long was he in uh, service? Uh, he joined the, he joined in, for 20 years and retired with a full pension at 38 years old as a captain. 
And the only reason he retired, actually, uh, is because his next deployment was to be promoted to major ah. and then uh, off to Japan for two years. And that's when he made the decision that uh, you know, two more years away from his family and what he had lost and what have you. So he decided to uh, uh, step out of the Marine Corps at that point in time, but moved to our hometown in Lawrence, Kansas and became mm-hmm. uh, part of the Sheriff's Department and did another 20-year career in the Sheriff's Department. So he's always been service to your country and, and, and your community. Uh, so he's been a great uh, guiding light for me as far as um, you know uh, that tenacity and, and, and stewardship for your, your community and your country. And uh, but he also remember he, he also reminds me if I would have joined the Marine Corps, I would have been retired at 38, my 38th birthday and my 58th birthday. He'll remind me again. <laughs> 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 so, but that's what father's But for, you see, right? that's what I was good. I was just getting ready to say that's what they do. It's in their yeah. DNA, right? Yeah. Now, what's your dad's name? Uh, Bill Shepard. I'm I'm junior. He's senior. Okay. Well, Bill Shepard, senior, thank you for your service and thank you for your son who uh, your DNA obviously plopped right on top of him for service. So this is great. Okay. So now we know a bit about you. What does the uh, commemorative Air Force Red Tail Squadron do? You know, just to rewind a little bit about the Commemorative Air Force, the Commemorative Air Force isn't just the Red Tail Squadron. It's actually oh, okay. a whole organization. So to give you the the the, uh, the the commercial of the Commemorative Air Force, it's a really exciting story because it was founded in 1957, and it's a good Southern Texas story because it was just a, a bunch of good old boys seeing aircraft. There were uh, ex-military guys seeing aircraft were being dismantled into the smelter, and some of our greatest treasures that helped win the war um, were being destroyed and not being memorialized. Uh, so a group of individuals down in Harlingen, Texas, got together, pooled their money together, and bought the first couple of aircraft uh, that the Commemorative Air Force owned and still own to this day. Mm-hmm. And uh, were able to uh, get a couple hundred guys together, guys and gals together, and help commemorate the, uh, the sacrifices that men and women had made for World War II. And even though we focus around the aircraft of the Commemorative Air Force, it's really about they're just a tool to tell a story about the people. And that's where, we're, uh, where we've really uh, buttered our bread here with the Commemorative force we focus on the greatest generation the people in the 1940s and world war ii mm, mm-hmm. and their greatest contribution and that really sets us apart well fast forward that clock going from a couple aircraft and a couple hundred members in southern texas we moved to midland texas where we then expanded the organization as our national headquarters and then we started developing satellite locations across the country so now after 50 60 years later we're not only 200 members we're 12,000 members plus a strong across the country in 70 different, uh, excuse me, it's uh, 80 different outlets now, 80 down in 26 different states. And we have 190, 179 different flying aircraft. And what's different for us is we actually fly our airplanes. It's not a museum, because uh, museums are for things of, the, of yesteryear. But uh, we actually actively fly all our aircraft across the country with our 12,000 members in our 26 states. And we commemorate the men and women who flew these aircraft and tell their story on their behalf. And uh, so that's the, the, the strength of the commemorative Air Force is the people and the stories. And, and you the know, Red Tail Squadron is just one of those squadrons. Thank you for that. Uh, I really appreciate that. And, and probably more importantly, history has become more important to me as I move toward the end of my toilet paper roll. Um, we have to have people to carry the torch to remember because without memories, we, we, we are no longer. And uh, so I'm hearing you say that 200 people, and I, oh, oh, wait, this is what I, I wrote down note. You said guys and gals. 
Yeah, yeah, we started it uh, as a mixed bunch, and, and mainly uh, back in uh, the Commemorative Air Force when it was started back in 1957. Mm-hmm. You know, it was well, it was mainly uh, the guys at the time. It was a male-dominated industry at that time, right? And mainly Caucasian males at that time were had yeah, the intestinal fortitude and the resources and stuff to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Well, we're really proud to say that we've become a, a great multicultural organization. We've uh, adopted the name Commemorative Air Force from our, our previous name or initial name that we had uh, with the times. Uh, a good 15, 16 years before all, all the uh, different, uh, say, political correctness uh, came to the forefront, the Commemorative Air Force led the charge on that mm-hmm. and uh, and recognized that if we're going to de- be a public um, uh, uh, mecca for what we do, we definitely need to be public leaders as well. So we changed the name to the Commemorative Air Force. Uh, we, we have men and women flying our aircraft. We have uh, some of the aircraft we have. We have the only men and women in the world who fly these things, like our B-29 uh, Super uh, Fortress. So we have two ladies who fly that. Are the only two ladies in the Get world. Get out. Actually That's wonderful. And then we have groups like myself, the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, we focus on uh, the Tuskegee Airmen and the Black Friday product story. Uh, being African American, I feel really excited because uh, well, there's two two parts that that story is the most people if they've seen movies such as the Tuskegee Airmen or Red Tails, they know that the other great aircraft out there is called the NAT6 or North American Trainer. Yes, that, that's World War II, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, and that aircraft was really important because all pilots had to fly that aircraft before they flew anything else in the oh. military. So the Tuskegee Airmen matched that, and they often call that plane the pilot maker because if you could fly an NAT-6 or a Texan or what it was called at the time, you could fly anything else. So once you mastered the Texan, mm-hmm. then you were able to progress to your fighter plane, whether it be a Corsair or a Mustang or, or whatever in that, in that case there. So going back to my personal story, I'm one of uh, five individuals of color in the continent who fly an NAT-6. And with the hours and, and skills that I have acquired, for it, it put me into a, a specific category of alumni that uh, able to do this. And I'm one of uh, three African American in the country to fly a P-51 Mustang. Now that's and where I only... want you to put a comma. Don't you talk fast? But this is oh, special. Yes. <laughs> this is special, okay? And I want people see a lot of people, Bill, aren't as interested in flight as I am. So we're talking about these. We need to. Uh, visualize for them what's the Mustang look like I appreciate you uh, telling us about the T6 being a required experience before you can move on to anything else but the fact that you're one of three people of color in the world certified for the P51C Mustang I want to know more about it what's it look like why it's important well, you know, the, the plane looks like speed. Uh, it's, a, it's a sleek uh, aircraft with great lines in the aircraft. And one of the fun facts about the P-51 Mustang, it's the fastest production plane ever designed and built, 120 days from concept to, to flight. And that was done in an era before they had AutoCAD and all the special computers yeah, yeah, they yeah, use. Yeah. Nowadays, it was done using using a slide rule in your, in your brain. And uh, and your in your free hand as far as drawing and, and designing this aircraft, so it was able to uh, uh, not only come to fruition 120 days, but endure over 70 years of service, mm. and uh, still and still going strong. So um, it's a wonderful uh, uh, tribute to American ingenuity and, uh, and manufacturing abilities uh, back from the 1940s and, and beyond. So this is an exciting plane. It has great uh, maneuverability, and the big difference with this aircraft and why it was such a game changer in World War II mm-hmm. is where it's able the first aircraft we actually take the fight to the enemy. 
most of the aircraft Battle of Britain era, and most people are familiar with, are all defensive aircraft and de defending the Great Isle of Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and when the P-51 Mustang was commissioned by the British, actually, to replace the Spitfire and Hurricane, uh, it was actually ordered from the British, and, uh, and North American uh, aircraft fulfilled the order, and it was there to help uh, become a fighter-pursuit aircraft and, and go deeper into the theater. And the P-51 Mustang was able to do that. Now, it was a collaborative effort uh, in the sense that uh, the original P-51, the A model, had the OP-40 uh, Curtis engine in it, so it didn't have this, the legs that the, the current model has now. But once they married it with the uh, Spitfire Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, mm. uh, that was what really made the difference, the P-51 and the, the speed, the sound, and the, and the legs to get all the way to, to Germany and back. And what's exciting about that is that the, the Tuskegee Airmen, taking it back to the Tuskegee Airmen, mm -hmm. are actually noted as flying the longest fighter yes, yes, yes. from Ramatilly, Italy, to Berlin and back. Right, right, right. So when, yes, when the Germans started seeing the P-51s showing up over Berlin, they, they knew the jig was up. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and that was really a turning point for the war. So the P-51 has had a glorious service. Uh, anyone who flies it uh, in yesteryear or today still has a sweet spot for them. So it's definitely an honor to not only fly the aircraft, but to tell the story of the men who, who, who've done that and be one of very few people in the world that can uh, to actually walk in their shoes. So it's been ex exciting for me personally. Well, I will tell you this. I feel proud of you right now. And I, you know, I understood probably 85% of what you just said. But um, I think, now you help me with this, I think when I was reading about you that you took it upon yourself to train the P-51C? Um, did I get that wrong? Well, it, 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 what, what happened, I think maybe it was you're speaking to as, um, well, the training aircraft, I'll back up a little, as I said earlier, the training aircraft for the Mustang is the T-6. Oh, okay. Texan, All right. Or in Canada, where I live, Canada's called the Harvard. Uh, all the same aircraft, but depending who's flying and where you are, you, you would call it something different. Because I'm uh, on a Harvard flight uh, team in Canada, and I have extensively hours in the Harvard and very proficient for for decades, mm -hmm. um, that was the next. The P-51 was a natural transition for me. Okay. So, so it, the training was so forth you do for any type rating for any aircraft and familiarization. But the barrier, I guess, to take away for the young kids that I talk today through my role as the VP of Education for the Commemorative Air Force mm -hmm. is to take down those barriers. And a lot of these barriers are access and financial barriers. You know, access to the airports when I was a kid didn't have all the barbed wire fences around right, the right. uh -huh. gates. And that you could actually walk across a field. You could walk across the runway. You could wash planes for, for a local buddy or something and then hop a ride. And you could do those kind of things. Well, today, uh, the young kid who lives across the street from where I'm at today uh, would come across the field, would have to get through the barbed wire fence, the mm -hmm. razor wire, and through the control gate, and then, you know, made to feel welcome. And then if they want to pursue, pursue flying, the financial barrier is $10,000 just to get a basic private pilot license in today's world. So so most of my hurdles in, in flying, uh, in, uh, for the P-51 in particular, were, were financial hurdles. Mm -hmm. um, sponsoring the aircraft, you know, we use uh, you know, 120 gallons an hour in fuel on takeoff, 70 gallons an hour of fuel on, uh, on cruising. So if you do 70 gallons an hour times $8 a gallon, you can see it's a very expensive plane to fly, plus you've got to fix it and maintain it. So it's, n it's out of the reach for the average person uh, to do that. 
So I had to do different things, go back to my my youthful days, and I had to, at, uh, at uh, 40 some years old, wash cars, do a bottle drive, do fundraising campaign. So once again, improvise, adapt, and overcome. Try Instead of finding ways that I can't do something, how could I do something? And I think that's a differentiator that we pass on to kids is there's all kinds of reasons not to do something. It takes the difference of character to figure out how you can do something and, and come with a can-do attitude. And I, I wish, well, I'm glad this will go on YouTube for perpetuity because what you just said, uh, I, I um, coach young women, and so often uh, the biggest job is to erase can't from their vocabulary and from their perspective. But the other thing I appreciate you uh, appreciate about you, Bill, is you walk the talk, just like you said, hurdles, access, financial, 10,000 K to get a basic license. And here you are in your forties, going back to do whatever it took to get to wherever you wanted to go. And that's what, uh, I respect and appreciate and, uh, hope that our audience is, uh, smiling as I am. I do have some other, um, terminology and titles I'd love for you to talk about if you wouldn't mind. And, and you remind me, I want to spend time on what you do with young people. That's very important to me, okay? Excellent, excellent. Okay, so I read, I think this is when you were younger, the Royal Canadian 19th and 27th Air Cadet Squadron. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, was? Yeah, but, but most in Canada and the U.S., they have all kinds of organizations, which are, you can say, paramilitary or mm-hmm. glorified Boy Scouts, what have you. And in the U.S., you have you know, Boy Scouts and, and, and Eagle Scouts and so forth, but also you have Civil Air Patrol, right. which is a military spin to that. Well, in Canada, it parallels a lot to that. And the Air Cadet Program is a Canadian version of the Civil Air Patrol that's associated with the Canadian Royal Canadian Military. Right. Uh, so being uh, from the U.S. and having uh, the, the military in my background, in my blood, as it were, as a young person going to the school in Canada, I naturally joined the Canadian uh, uh, equivalency to the Civil Air Patrol. Okay. And I was in a, a Civil Air Patrol squadron, or, or Air Cadet squadron, rather, in Canada. And actually, that's where I got my love, uh, continued my love or passion for flying and helped to uh, get involved with aircraft and gliding and just being around aircraft and, and having that opportunity for access and being part of my world. So it was uh, something that was not foreign to me. I also remember a very interesting number. I think it was 15, and it was associated with you getting a pilot's license. Am I remembering correctly? Yeah, actually, I started flying when I was a young age, and uh, and I had moved back to actually uh, Texas with my father. My father's last duty station was uh, um, um, NAS Dallas Naval Air Station Dallas. We had moved from California, El Toro Air Station, mm-hmm. for folks who know the military bases. And we had gone to NAS Dallas, and I remember when I was a, a young person, I had already been flying a little bit to, through uh, the Canadian uh, uh, Air Cadet Program, but I was sitting with my uh, buddy Jimmy Smith, and I uh, he was a transplant. We were both expats to Texas, as it were, mm-hmm. and we were watching planes uh, fly over high school at the Arlington Municipal Airport, and we said, hey, let's go out there and let's uh, mm-hmm. sign up for the, those little programs. We went out and looked, and next thing you know, I signed up for a Cessna pilot training program. And I work at, at Piggly Wiggly bagging groceries back in those days. For <laughs> I know Piggly Wiggly. An hour. Yeah. yeah, I was making two fifteen an hour and had more money in my pocket then than I do now. 
And uh, everybody <laughs> I had uh, went to flying lessons, and uh, I was able to achieve my pilot license in three months. I sold in five hours, and within three months I had my pilot license in the bag. And uh, the problem is I was too young to, uh, to, to hold it. That's what so I was going to ask you. Okay. Yeah. So I, uh, so as a student pilot with, uh, with all the accreditation, I had to wait till my 17th birthday to actually get it in the mail. And uh, so I waited for that. But, but at that point in time, uh, I actually had to finish school in Canada. And so just got my pilot license, just got it out of the mailbox, and I was shipped off to Canada to finish my uh, last years of school. And then I achieved my Canadian pilot license then. So I carry two licenses, uh, a Canadian and a U.S. Uh, full Canadian pilot license, commercial licenses. And uh, so that's kind of how it all kind of began uh, into that. And my dad actually didn't want me to fly, actually. He's, what? Uh, he's, more, he's concerned. Well, he, he's come from the military and from Vietnam, and he's had a lot of friends uh, not make it. Okay. Before, uh, so he's coming from that fatherly perspective, and don't want your kids hurt, want to protect them in, in bubble wrap. Uh, but I, he still backed me up through it, and uh, and I was able to uh, continue on flying, and here I am today. And we look back, uh, you know, the, all the left and right turns and the roads of life you could take and where they could lead you. And uh, and uh, and uh, if you made a couple decisions here or there, um, it would have been a whole different life for me. Well, it wasn't, and you are, and you have achieved. And I have heard you. I'm going to actually read a quote I pulled out uh, that I like, and I want to use it as a segue uh, for you to talk to me about your life as a role model, mentor, or what have you. Uh, in your own words, it says, with the support of my family, I've been able to aim high. I believe in myself. I use my brain to achieve my goals. I never quit and instead find a way. I am always ready to go and prepared and truly in my heart, not just my brain, I expect to win. I love that, by the yeah, and that's really a, a good segue to the the Commemorative Air Force Red Tail Squadron uh, Tuskegee program, uh, Rise Above uh, program, we call it. Mm -hmm. And those were those uh, those uh, principles were the principles we adopted from the Tuskegee Airmen. I have to give uh, give a nod and respect to them. But uh, aim high, believe in yourself, use your brain, never quit, and expect to win. Oh, and okay. Those are their six principles. The six principles, and I've adopted them into uh, how I how I work my life and things. And I think a lot of us do those six principles in our own on our own way, word it a little differently. But I think the root uh, for anybody that I found successful is it really has their success rooted in, in a variation of those six principles right there, uh, regardless of where you come from. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've been able to uh, to use that and leverage that for the successes in my life. And uh, yeah, I tell young young people um, through our Rise Above Tour for the Commemorative Air Force that you may not be able to exude all six principles, mm -hmm. but you can get, at least get one or two of them. So when you try an activity, you know, we talk about expect to win. When you go and kick the ball, the proverbial ball, you got to kick it like you're going to win. You might not score, but you got to kick it like you're going to win. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? So instead of uh, trying out there. And, and that segues into what we do here at the Commemorative Air Force, the Red Tail Squadron specifically, mm -hmm. is uh, we travel from coast to coast to coast. And our founder, Don Hines, is our unit founder, Don Hines, um, who uh, actually perished in an aircraft uh, accident many years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he wanted to tell the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. So we, we reconditioned, we, we uh, re uh, restored a P-51 C model Mustang and restored the Red Tail Mustang to uh, to commemorate the squadrons of the Commemorative Air Force, the, all the squadrons of the 332nd Air Group, the four squadrons, mm -hmm. 99th being one of them. 
and we had a, a, a paint scheme or livery that represents uh, all four squadrons at, uh, on the Commemorative Air Force aircraft. And you can see that on uh, redtail.org. Yeah, I went there, actually, and I have a picture of it right now. Excellent, excellent. And uh, what Don Hines' mission was to have the, the red tail story, the Tuskegee Airmen, at every school in America. So what we've done is we've taken that to heart, that mission, and we have a uh, a mobile movie exhibit that travels around the country with myself and the team. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, for lack of better words, and, uh, and ICAST is a, uh, uh, maybe, um, um, the, the um, uh, the movie system is, is uh, um, uh, kind of a panoramic movie uh, screening system. It's in a transport truck trailer, a 53-foot transport truck trailer that has push-outs like a big mobile home. Mm-hmm. It holds 50 people inside, and it's a dynamic, interactive, exciting movie about the Tuskegee Airmen, about uh, 30 minutes long. And we actually roll this to schools all across America every year, about 35, 40 schools every flight season. And we park it up in our front schoolyard, and we have uh, at least uh, all the we empty the school out. And we have all the kids come through take turns and come to the school and see and experience what it would be the story of the Tuskegee Airmen and they get their own dog tag to take home with them that has those six principles in there. Uh, So we do that Monday to Friday and then on Friday afternoon we're usually associated that communities with an air show. Mm -hmm. We move the the mobile movie exhibit to the local airport and then uh, myself or one of my teammates will fly the P-51 Mustang in there Thursday night, Friday morning and we have now you can come out of the trailer, the unit movie exhibit and actually see the aircraft that's in the movie and actually experience a, a touch and feel a real P-51 Mustang. And we usually do an air show associated with the event, and then we move on to the next uh, next place on, on Sunday. Now, here's what I wanted to ask you. Uh, somebody, I think it was Devon, was telling me you, you were about to go do an air show. Okay. How does a school engage you? How, how do we make, if I wanted to make that happen in Fairfax, Virginia, at one of these schools or in, in uh, Maryland, how would that happen? Yeah, you would go to our website, redtail.org, mm-hmm. and uh, you would talk to our logistics coordinator, and you would you would book the event, and, and we would then coordinate and work the de- details out about coming to your school, and either just with a movie exhibit or with the trailer, and, and also the commemorative Air Force. We even have something more portable, uh, a dome theater, which is like a portable planetarium, mm. and we show the movie in, and the, the, the essence is, is we, this movie is only shown in a couple of venues, the movie exhibit trailer or the Dome Theater, because it's an experiential movie. It's all immersive. So this movie, the real secret sauce that uh, we show is that it's not on a flat screen, it's not on a whiteboard, it's not on a projector system. It's on an immersive uh, surround uh, enveloping system. So you experience the movie rather than just simply watching it uh, uh, passively. So that's really the secret sauce of the Red Tail program. And then also having the aircraft show up at the venue as well if, if it has a runway obviously there in an airport or a community associated with an airport and uh and then so it's a kind of a one-two punch and we travel all across the country and we do this and that's been exciting for the last uh eight years i've been involved with the, with the red tail squadron and uh and once again going to 35 40,000 kids and adults every year mm. we, have, we have a definite uh footprint and we've left across the country and we're going strong thank you for that first of all um that's awesome. That's what that's what I'm thinking. But the obvious question for me is, how do you support that program? 
Well, we, we have great, great uh, uh, people uh, endowing the uh, supporting the organization. We have, uh, like any other nonprofit organization, we have fees that for showing up. A lot of times we come to a school. Mm-hmm. Usually, local community business partner will help sponsor our fees to get to the school to help uh, help us with the branding and so forth to be for that location. Usually, if the if there's an air show associated with the community there, they offer support as well. But then also we have a great fundraising uh, program. We have that we have a, a mailing program that we have connection and relationship with uh, people who are supporters from coast to coast to coast who definitely uh, send in the funds to keep us keep us rolling down the road and, and tell this great story. So what I'm wanting to repeat at this point, uh, Bill travels with an experiential exhibit in a trailer or dome theater experience, um, and you may find out more about that by going to redtail.org and connecting with some of his logistics personnel. Am I correct? That's correct. Yeah, Christy, would love to talk to you. Uh, also, I wanted to know, what's the most frequently asked question once the children have experienced the trailers? The trailer. Yeah, yeah well, it's, uh, a lot of times the kids are in disbelief because they just have not had that opportunity yeah, before yeah, to yeah. actually touch or feel or see an aircraft uh-huh. or get in the aircraft. One of the uh, expressions we use here, the commemorative Air Force, is drop the rope. Uh, mm. We actually don't, we're not a, a museum where you have to stand back and look at things that are static. We actually are a dynamic mm-hmm. organization where we actually get people in the aircraft. You can fly in the aircraft. Mm. One of our mantras is everybody flies. So if you want to fly in a P-51, you want to fly in a bomber, you want to fly in a transport plane, we have the skills and ability and access to people to do that. We're, the, we're one of the few people in the world that can do that in such a scale that uh, the commemorative Air Force has. Uh, we have simulation uh, opportunities as well. So uh, we have a really good immersive opportunity where people can get engaged and involved. Uh, because we have 12,000 members, we have mm. all kinds of people who want to involve. Mm-hmm. Fun fact for you that, uh, uh, that uh, it's a 14 to 1 ratio for flying. So for every one pilot, there's 14 support crew. So we really express to the kids, you don't have to be the pilot to be the important yeah. part of the equation. There's all kinds of jobs in aerospace and aviation that you can be part of, uh, whether it be the maintainer or the ground crew or the aircraft control system. So we ex- let people experience what it was like to rise above your situation. Oh, yes, yes, yes. In, and experience aviation uh, you know, from that aspect. I am so excited because I'm really interested in promoting the whole STEM or science, technology, engineering, and math fields for our young people. I um, One of my favorite interviews was with an astrophysicist uh, who works at NASA, and she can make space exciting in unbelievable ways. And uh, what she was sharing, you know, she started out dreaming as a toddler looking up at the sky, and you just said, drop the rope. Everybody can fly. I want us to be able to expand the imaginations of our young people and help them to get rid of the word can't. And as I'm looking at the clock, guess what I need you to do, Bill? Yes, I, ma'am. I need you to, I asked Bill, as I do always, to write a letter to his younger self to read to us. Um, usually those letters reveal things to the writer as well as to the listener. Would you mind doing that now? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So just bear with me here. I'll bear with you. So my letter is to uh, Dear Young Billy, get ready for a great ride of your life. I hope this finds you well, but I could probably answer that question for you. I've come to know you as a rising star, a shining star, so I know that looking, uh, I know looking at you that it would be hard to imagine you having a mediocre day. 
In saying that, I reflect on my own life, and I'm compelled to tell you, young Bill, breathe. Life is about to come at you in big gulps of air in a way that you, that, uh, the way you take things on. I know your mouth will be wide open to take it all in. So what I want to tell you is take the time to enjoy the sweetness of the air. Take it all in, but breathe deeply and let it fill your lungs into greatness, capacity, and abundance that you'll never realize with small, shallow breaths. Smell those proverbial roses that they talk about so much, and you deserve to be there. Often the path you'll take will take you to places that you'll be the one and the only, the one and the only person to hold a certain accreditation, the one and the only person to complete a task, the only person to do things first. But let this be your strength and the charge for excellence, not the excuse to blame society for our hardships that we humans endure. Don't be a victim, but rather a builder of greatness. Bill, you will you will be asked to do to give many things and many at many times. So fill your pockets with love, kindness, and respect, uh, and respect the path that others follow. And it will be different from yours. With this, you'll never be empty. And you'll, when you reach in to give, you truly give something that is truly yours to give. The one and the only selfless gift is hope. So carry yourself well, make room for others. Embrace your passions. Live well. You're truly Bill Shepard Sr. I'm impressed. Things that you impressed me by, the concept of breathe, take time to enjoy, let being the first be your strength, love, kindness, respect, wear them as your accessories. Thank you so much, Bill. I want to remind our listeners you're listening to Bill Shepard and we've been flying with him now for at least 40 minutes and I want to leave you with our spiritual doggy bag I usually do this for the the moments during the next week where you may just say I am tired of being tired or am I enough maybe you think you don't deserve to be different or the more that you want stop right there check your label you're worthy. You are enough. You are amazing, just as you are. You're smarter than you think, stronger than you know, more beautiful than you believe, and more love than you can ever imagine. You have everything inside of you you need to be who you were created to be. Your calling in life is to fully express who you already are. The world will never see another human being like you. There's no one on the face of the planet that has what you have. Your uniqueness in every respect is your gift. Life asks one thing of you to be the full expression of yourself so that you can leave your unique imprint on all of those you encounter. Bill Shepard, you've left a unique imprint on me and I'm sure on my listeners. I am so grateful that you gave me your time, your experience, and your spirit. Your seat at the, guarantee, your seat at the table is guaranteed and you know I look forward to hearing from you next week, same time. This is Tyra G. Take care. <laughs>